people feel the need to be sort of certain about why they're going down the rabbit hole they're going down. But if you kind of keep your intellect sharply engaged, and sometimes to a fault, it's not necessarily the best way to go about things. For me, it's partly just temperamental, is that you keep that critical mind going that in a way, a kind of doubt, hopefully the doubt serves your deeper evolution and it doesn't just prevent you from committing to anything that might be attractive to you. And that was part of it too, is I, I think I'm somebody who's naturally interested in too many things and maybe has had at times an unwillingness to profoundly commit. Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. Hi, it's Jessica Ann. I'm so excited to present to you season five of the art of humanity. I use the word present intentionally, representing meaning to me and hopefully to you too. It's truly a gift for me to be able to make this show for you. You specifically pressed play or subscribe, and now we are here together in the present. So I'm going to ask you to be present with me too. Even if you're listening to this long after I recorded it and clicked publish, this is further proof that time is nonlinear and we've clearly entered another dimension. Are you ready to go down the rabbit hole with me? Okay, first exercise. I'd love for you to breathe in slowly as we meditate through a conversation with someone that I respect and admire. I'm so honored to have interviewed this guest about a subject that sets the tone for a season of exploration and discovery. So let's take a deep inhale. Exhale. Beautiful. We're on this journey together. If you've joined me in seasons one through four, you should know that the show has evolved over time, from Jeff Pulver's inspirational inaugural episode to my most popular guest, my friend and colleague, Jeff Brown's first appearance. Side note, he's coming back in this season, to the massively popular Seth Godin episode, which shout out to everyone listening on YouTube. I know it may seem small, but that episode has over 6,000 views and counting at the time of this recording. One of my listeners recently found me through the Seth Godin interview. His name is AJ Brooks, and he's a photographer in LA. He goes by the Instagram handle Imager, that's I-M-A-J-U-R. He writes, I recently found Jessica's podcast through her wonderful interview with Seth Godin. I appreciate her thoughtfulness and sensitivity as an interviewer. She's a curator of positive and helpful thinking, and I'm grateful for the message she communicates through her work and her own unique voice. Thank you. Thank you, AJ. If you love this podcast, I'd so appreciate it if you went on iTunes right now and left a review. You can also share this show with two of your friends. iTunes has made it pretty easy, so just go to the three dots on the bottom right of your screen and click copy link to then share it with two friends who may enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for sharing. If you're new to the show and want to get a list of my favorite books and resources on awakening and higher consciousness, there's a new addition to the artofhumanity.io website. You can now go to artofhumanity.io slash store. This store is designed to be a guide for the products that I have incorporated into my life, and in many cases, drastically improved my life. This is a new addition to my website, and I hope you can dive in and find something that you love. 
Over the past year, I've come to truly better understand myself and my unique gifts in the world. I've used many tools as my awakening has continued to unfold. And I'd love to introduce you to many of the books, products, and resources, which I hope will help you too. I'm pretty particular about what I put in my store, and if it's listed in there, it means it has helped me on my path. And I hope it will help guide you on your path as well. We're at the dawn of a brand new season that focuses on empowering the next paradigm of consciousness. And I hesitate to even try to define consciousness at this point in time, because it's something that we will do together through listening, exploring, and evolving with my guests as the light. Now, this theme of consciousness is bursting at the seams to be published. I've been on a whirlwind inner outer journey since the last episode got published, and I'm so grateful to finally be sharing my journey with you now. So this word consciousness is pretty tricky, nuanced, and a bit weird if you're on this path of awakening. With ascension symptoms, we may question if any of it is real, but then we have a meditation experience which transports us into a new reality, and we know it's real with every cell of our being. But there comes a caveat. A lot of the law of attraction, new age stuff out there is dangerous. Yeah, I said it, dangerous. It's not grounded in reality, and it's being taught by New Age teachers who really aren't grounded in reality either. I'm not claiming I am this superior teacher and I am super grounded all the time, (laughs) but I just want to point out the addiction to formlessness and the addiction to only being in the light when it comes to spirituality. In order to truly surrender to the divine, we need to channel the light through something called embodiment which is our human vessel. We cannot completely numb out through meditation. The past few months have been an awakening journey for me as I've slowly come to grips with this humbling journey and how it reflects in my work here on planet Earth. This is a real point of contention, and I'll dive in more detail with my friend Jeff Brown in episode 52. So let's get to today's episode. Are you ready for it? Today's guest is someone who aligns with my mission for embodiment and free thinking. Author, podcaster, thinker, Eric Davis. His body of work stands out to me as he applies intellect to deep spiritual experiences. Some of you may know that I moved to the Bay Area recently, so I had the lovely opportunity to meet Eric in person at his book signing at City Lights Bookstore back in June, where he read chapters of his new book, High Weirdness which is an exploration of the emergence of a new psychedelic spirituality. I also had the chance to go on a walk in Golden Gate Park with him and a few other seekers. Truly one of the joys of living in the Bay Area is connecting with people like Eric. With so many spiritual seekers out there today, it's easy for me to feel through the BS. Eric is the real deal. At least that's how it feels for me. I first was introduced to Eric's work through Douglas Rushkoff, who I interviewed in episode 17. Then I read just about all of his books, and I find it fascinating that the only time he's documented his own experiences to date is one of his earlier books called Nomad Codes, which explores the codes, spiritual, cultural, and embodied, that people use to escape the limitations of their lives and enrich their experience of the world. Think about it. We look up to the ancient mystics with nostalgia for their wisdom, but who's to say that some of these people aren't transmuting deep knowledge right now in the present moment. Douglas Rushkoff thinks this may be the case. In his review of Eric's latest book, High Weirdness, he writes, 
High Weirdness is the first book in a very long time that's given me the feeling of discovering a secret truth, a set of corridors through the maze of consciousness, existence, anomaly, and synchronicity. It's the sense of complete novelty, yet utter familiarity. Like suddenly remembering a dream that you've been having every night, and then forgetting. Davis is describing, perhaps, even retrieving, the strange attractor driving the visionary 70s. It's a sensibility all but lost to the utilitarian, conformist predictability of the digital age. Yet it's also precisely the terrifying and awesome novelty we need to recover if we're going to preserve the uniquely human ability to embrace paradox, celebrate ambiguity, and laugh at death. Don't be afraid. It's just the weird. How great is that? (laughs) We need to embody this new energy. Moving through the lower frequencies and vibrations and acclimating our bodies so that we become the vehicle of our expression. It's an experiential way of living. It's a process and one that I'm thrilled to share with you as I experience reality alongside you. If you're into exploring the deeper layers of multidimensionality, but some of the new age stuff no longer works or resonates, this conversation is for you. I'm honored to introduce you to my mentor, colleague, and friend, Eric Davis. He looks at the world in a truly unique way. He's a novelist, writer, podcaster, and speaker, and his writings have covered everything from rock criticism to cultural analysis to creative explorations of esoteric mysticism. His most recent book, High Weirdness, Drugs, Esoterica, and Visionary Experience in the 70s is out now. Eric loves to analyze the weird, and in High Weirdness, he dives deep into the psychedelic culture of the 1970s, a time that was so strange, it was almost otherworldly. In this interview, Eric and I discuss how his background as a stoner seeker and intellect has fueled his work in the world, why reality is multiple, the tension between academia and spirituality. We also discuss why the greatest teacher of all is your own life, and a concept that I really resonate with, even though it sounds paradoxical, why embodiment can be achieved through uncertainty and ideas. If you like this podcast, leaving a five-star review on iTunes would mean the world to me and help to gain momentum as I begin this new season. It really only takes a few seconds. So if you could go over right now to iTunes and leave a review, I'll maybe even give you a shout out in my next episode. Here's the very first episode of season five, my interview with Eric Davis. To get all the links and show notes from this episode, go to artofhumanity.io slash episodes. Hope you enjoy. Eric, thank you so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So Eric, I was listening to a few of your latest podcasts and one of your listeners wrote to you and described you as a mix of a stoner, a seeker, and an intellect. Wow, that yeah. is quite the trifecta. And, you know, while reading your book, it was really clear that you have almost the perfect balance of each. How have you evolved over time? Like, I know you kind of started as a seeker and you went through the hippie hype in that part of your life and you've evolved gradually over time. How has each phase of your life shaped who you are today and your work in the world? Well, that's a cool question. Yeah, well, I, I'm someone who's very much a creature of my own influences, my own time, my the time and space I grew up, not in a nostalgic way or a stuck-in-the-mud way, but I really took on a lot of influences and then kind of ran with them. So I grew up in Southern California on the coast of North County, 
north of San Diego in the, you know, late seventies, early eighties, I was kind of coming of age. So, you know, I was a little kid in the seventies. I entered high school in 1980. So I was right at the tail end of the counterculture, which was very visible where I grew up because it was Southern California. So in high school, just for fun, we would go to like Zen temples and go to the Hare Krishna temple and go see the Grateful Dead. And, you know, we'd run into like wandering hippie mendicants. And my friends and I, we were kind of like little hippies. Like we listened to new wave and punk music too, but we were also really into hippie culture and drug culture and sort of identified with that kind of current that was also sort of real in our lives. Again, with like older brothers or the local flea markets or stuff like that. So in retrospect, that was in a way the weirdest time of my life when I had the most peculiar experiences and I was fascinated by it all and I was kind of absorbing as much of it as I could. And then for somewhat random reasons, I got in and decided to go to uh, to Yale on the East Coast, prim and proper, uh, super intellectual, very different than my high school experience, which was kind of like if you guys have ever seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it was like kind of like that except surrounded by chaparral. It's now surrounded by uh, track homes. But when we were there, it was this beautiful Southern California desert kind of environment and great for sneaking off to campus and stuff. So that was kind of my background. Then guy went, went to this sort of high octane intellectual environment. And I, you know, I became very exhilarated with cultural criticism, with thinking hard about art and the spirit and poetry and philosophy and theory and the nature of technology. And I became interested right off the bat with this question of what was technology doing with us. It was the kind of high and holy days of postmodernism. So there was a lot of talk about the loss of grand narratives and the kind of multiplication of different ways of seeing the world. And it was a, a lot of emphasis on mixes of high culture and low culture and a growing awareness that technology was going to change the game. So I tuned in right away to some of these issues, and I wrote about Philip K. Dick, for example, who I discovered. And at that time in the late 80s, you know, he was a pretty obscure writer. You know, he had his fans, but a lot of his books were out of print. He wasn't that well known. And that was a real touchstone for me. It was California. It was technology. It was mysticism, the extraordinary experience. It had this marvelous mixture of low culture and high concept philosophical ideas. So I just loved it. So I kind of absorbed this pretty high uh, intellectual sort of background, but I didn't want to go on to graduate school for a number of reasons. I couldn't face it. I couldn't face it psychologically. I couldn't handle the sort of that world anymore. I needed to get to something a little grittier. So I moved to New York City and became a rock critic and a kind of cultural commentator. And that was, you know, that was for your younger listeners. In those days, I was online. It was the pre-World Wide Web internet. Uh, you know, I got online in the early 1990s, but it was still a pretty esoteric and quite wonderful space in retrospect. It, it was really quite a, a playground of really interesting, unusual people, writers, thinkers, edge walkers. And because the internet had yet to take over, the world of alternative journalism was still extremely rich and a world to live in and to even make a little money from. So I was able to support myself as a freelance writer. So I kind of took a lot of my esoteric interests and interests for my own life and sort of turned them into objects to write about. Like they talk about in anthropology, they're sort of participant observer stance where you're kind of in the thing, but you're also kind of thinking about it and writing about it. And that was the way I approached spiritual cultures, subcultures, extreme cultures, psychedelics, festivals, 
UFOs, witchcraft, all this weird stuff that what I call now like the weird was kind of my beat. And so through all of these influences, I was always kind of kept in touch with being, you know, in a weird way, like an adolescent stoner seeker kind of guy. But I was just exploring those interests through philosophy and history and theory on the one hand, but also in cultural journalism and exploration of different cultures on the other. And so I just kept the whole ball game rolling. I think one of the things that I did, while it has limited me in certain ways, in the end has really served me. And I experienced my important influences, whether that's The Grateful Dead or the poetry of William Blake or the wonders that is California's Sensimia. Whatever that stuff is, I experience it and have processed it as kind of like a transmission, like they talk about in, you know, you can think about it in terms of electricity, but, you know, in some spiritual groups, like in Zen, they talk about this, to become a true Zen teacher, you get transmission from your master. And it's this kind of partly spiritual and partly institutional sort of transfer of authority, of impressions, of a current of some kind of knowledge, some kind of mystery. And this is the same thing with gurus or or witchcraft groups. You know, people will say, oh, well, I had this teacher and they, I learned how to do Wicca this way. And then I met this person and they gave me this new way. And so that's what I ran with. And so in a way, we're all kind of influenced. It's like when you go to a yoga teacher and there's like, they do it a certain way and you really love that teacher and you, you kind of get into their shtick and you might even do a teacher training program with them. And then at some point, you got to kind of go off and find your own way. And that's kind of how things go. But I very much stayed, again, not nostalgically, but stayed very aware of these forces that influenced me, that has given me a, a kind of a great sense of, of the history of these things that are often, they're kind of marginal. And so we forget the histories or we only think about what they are now. So like, you know, meditation is it means what it means now in terms of mindfulness and other things. And it, we forget that there's decades and decades and decades of Westerners who are exploring meditation. Some of them are freaks, some of them are crazy, some of them are brilliant. <laughs> and so I feel in a way part of, very aware that I'm part of a stream, of a California stream, of an esoteric stream of these kinds of influences and ideas and practices even as I remain critical of a lot of them because I'm also an intellectual and I'm a historian and a, and a critic to some degree. So that's been the kind of shape of this interesting, I don't call it a career, I call it a careen. <laughs> <laughs> I love <laughs> that. It's, yeah. yeah, it's not often been clear exactly where it was going and I've just been very lucky, you know, and in a way that I sometimes feel obliged to tell people that I've been lucky that I've had other sources of support that have enabled me to kind of keep doing this you know, in the face of the eternal pressures of, of make a buck. I've been able to kind of balance that and, and create this kind of zone. That's phenomenal. That is such a fascinating Korean, as you call it. I love that word. Because reality is what you choose to focus on. And you've actually experienced this in not only your work itself, but in your actual life. To use the cliche, like you really practice what you preach. And, you know, you've used the stream of esoteric ideas and whether it was because you're in California or not, you know, there is this idea that we can hop into a different reality. You know, you wake up one day and you have this idea and at least this is my experience and I am like you. I mean, obviously I'm not as experienced and I haven't gone down as many rabbit holes quite yet. There's still time, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's kind of fun and I love it. And it's almost like 
you can access a different reality depending on which idea or which belief system you choose to tap into. Can we go back to the earlier time of your life when you were still receiving this transmission, as you like to call it? What was going on? Were you able to juggle the balance between the spiritual component of all of this and the institutional or more academic side of it all? Yeah, that was probably a a bit of a tension. What it has given me, however, over time is a willingness to be in uncertainty even as I practice. For a while, this kind of made sense to me. And I knew a lot of people who had a similar kind of attitude, meaning that you might be into a trip, a reality tunnel, as you put it. You know, you get into a a meditation practice or you become obsessed with yoga or you become obsessed with some ancient text or or UFOs or something. And you, you kind of go down the rabbit hole. And a lot of time, especially today, and we could talk about that, why it seems like there's even more of this, that people feel the need to be sort of certain about why they're going down the rabbit hole they're going down. But if you kind of keep your intellect sharply engaged, and sometimes to a fault, it's not necessarily the best way to go about things. For me, it's partly just temperamental, is that you keep that critical mind going that in a way, a kind of doubt, hopefully the doubt serves your deeper evolution and it doesn't just prevent you from committing to anything that might be attractive to you. And that was part of it too, is I I think I'm somebody who's naturally interested in too many things and maybe has had at times an unwillingness to profoundly commit. So it was good to be a freelancer because I could jump around a lot and kind of nibble and dabble and put my toes into waters. You know, there's a bit of a, of a dilettante in my careen. And so that, you know, is not necessarily the best way to approach things. But at this point in my life, what it's given me is, is an ability to be in a kind of relativistic space, but not get stuck in kind of a nihilism where, oh, who cares? It doesn't matter. It's all just confusing or, you know, there's just depends on where you're at or, you know, it depends on what perspective you have. And I'm not like that. Like I, I don't submit to like full relativism. But what I do believe is that reality is multiple. It's fundamentally multiple. That means that the different perspectives are not just like there's a reality out there and we have different perspectives and we can either celebrate that in some kind of multicultural, it's all groovy kind of way, even though we have to ignore a lot of things to do that. Like, what do we do with people who don't agree with us and want to kill us for our beliefs? Mm -hmm. Or we can say, no, we know what the right way to be is that we should think scientifically, we should reject religion, for example, or that you know only uh, meditation is going to release us from the fetters of this zone, or only by returning to the body and celebrating sexuality and our connection with nature are we going to restore the broken society, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's all these different things and we can, you know, and people can argue very strongly about where they are. And I'm like, I don't think it's like there's one reality and then all of these different perspectives. I think that reality itself is partly something that we are co-determining and we're doing it in a pluralistic way, in a way where there are fundamentally multiple facets, multiple modes, multiple dimensions of what this thing reality is. You know, in a way, it's a kind of cop-out because I can just go, oh, you know, there's different ways of looking at things because there's different worlds and they kind of interact and we can describe them or whatever. But it's just more and more clear to me, that that's how things unfold in my world. 
but it's not just a personal take. I think it's actually a position, a way to look at reality. And there's a philosophical tradition that I can pull out of it. But it answers to this issue you have, because the common thing that people say to Cal about, say, California, you were saying all these different new age techniques, there's different meditation masters. It's always changing. It's always rootless. And from some outsiders, it doesn't look so healthy. You know, one, oh, wait, nobody ever really commits to anything, or it's a cafeteria religion. You, people are just picking and choosing. And until you truly commit and, and take on and, and face the challenges and the constraints of any path or any route towards truth, you're never going to get there. And I think to some degree, those are important critiques and sometimes are valid. But I think they miss something else that's going on, which is that in a way, we are trying to navigate a world that really is multidimensional. It's not that there's like a world and we're just hopping around different perspectives. It's that we can sense, we can move through these different kinds of possibilities. And that's in a way how we stay sane. And it's sometimes how we lose our sanity by not being able to balance the different worlds that we live in. In a way, the need to move between worlds, I think, is very healthy. Even, in fact, in particular, if they're contradictory, like the world of, for me, the world of intellectual work, you know, a lot of intellectuals, especially earlier, you know, but, you know, it's still true today. A lot of them really hate spirituality and think it's bullshit. They don't like that California, especially if it's in the East Coast or Europe. They don't, they mock it. It's an object of goofiness. And so I was always very aware of being in these two kind of worlds where I was critical, but also very supportive and and fascinated by this kind of panoply of spirituality and new technologies. And it's just, you know, for me, California is just one of the most fascinating parts of the modern world, the whole history of the modern world. It's like California is like as interesting as anything, mm -hmm. even though it's also superficial in some ways and narcissistic. And, you know, you can say those kinds of things that people say about it. But, you know, like a lot of things, I think it's the hometown team who can really offer them the best critiques I was very aware of like being kind of a little bit of a heretic, but I, I like being a heretic. So in a way, I've also enjoyed the tension of being someone who moves between worlds and therefore really doesn't belong in any of them. <laughs> I can so relate. I love that answer. And I love how you started the answer to that by saying that it was a way for you to allow for uncertainty even as you practiced. It's not like you reach this conclusion and then you're finally okay with it. And that's part of the joy and that's part of the fun of it all. And California is such a hotbed for that reason because it's a way to build your spiritual muscles. And I love that you talk about the need to move between worlds. You create your reality from that place. just find it fascinating because there are all of these other writers and explorers out there like Terrence McKenna. And I love his work, but, you know, it's a little bit too drug-induced for me. And then, you know, there's the seekers, the bodhisattvas, they're a little bit fluffy. The Ken Wilbers are, you can claim them to be a little too intellectual. They each have their place in the world. And in a way, when you apply all these different principles and practices into your own life, you can appreciate the tension and the paradox yeah. of it all. And one of the good things about practicing with paradox or practicing with uncertainty is not just, again, there's a tendency to think of it, oh, that's just like postmodernism where you just don't know and you jump around, you know, ever really like wrestle with things. But there's something else that it does that I think is really profound or can do, which is that if you're uncertain about the big picture, the meaning of it all, the proper framework, 
the validity of a variety of philosophical and spiritual perspectives. If you see that there's uncertainty that runs through the story, if you're drawn to the paradoxical nature of many of these teachings or the very paradoxical nature of being alive, trying to figure this stuff out, particularly at this point in history, I believe that sort of properly processed or integrated, that uncertainty and that sense of paradox throws you back on the greatest teacher of all, which is your own life, your own life, your struggles, your experiences, your relationship to food, your relationship to the weather, to animals, to the people in your lives. No, no, not necessarily so much the technologized, weaponized social matrix that we now kind of operate in our zone. Like that's obviously someplace we live, we work, we meet people. It's very important. But that's not quite what I'm talking about. There's something about the way uncertainty and paradox throws you back into your body, not as something that you can totally understand, but as like a center of gravity, a place where you have no choice but to be yourself, to explore your experiences the way that you taste the world. And for me, that doesn't just mean you're a narcissist because you have to like ask, what does this mean? Why am I doing this? Look what happened to that person when I did this other thing. Like there's all this information, there's all this wisdom that is coming just through your life, just through the way you live as an embodied being in relationship to other bodies in space, in weather, in particular historical time that I believe become actually more available when you bring greater uncertainty and a sense of paradox to the big pictures. But that's not what most people do. <laughs> most people want a story. Yes. They want to know who they are, where they're going, what the point of it all, what the meaning is, where the pot of gold lies, which rainbow it lies under. And that helps organize the uncertainty of everyday experience where I'm saying, go into that uncertainty because that's where life is. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad that you explained it this way because I feel this way and I don't think many people do and I don't know if my listeners can even relate to this but you know uncertainty throws you into your body as you said and I find that fascinating because <laughs> I'm an intellect like I read I read 50 books this past year and right on and your book was one of them I just feel alive through the uncertainty that I have no idea about all of this information that I don't know yet so when I explore stuff that I didn't know existed. I don't know what exists tomorrow. I don't know. And it's this constantly evolving permutation of different new realities that we can expose ourselves to. And one of the things that I like to practice is embodiment. And I've never heard it explained in a way that you can achieve embodiment through uncertainty and through being in your head, through ideas and through reality. So thank you for explaining it in that way. <laughs> yeah, some of that comes a lot from how I, I spent a good chunk of time in my forthcoming book, High Weirdness, uh, looking at the work of Robert Anton Wilson. And Robert Anton Wilson is another one of these kind of fringe thought leaders, not quite as well known as I think he should be. You know, he wrote his books in the, from 70s, 80s, 90s, some fiction, some nonfiction. And he was a psychedelic intellectual, a radical pluralist, politically kind of a libertarian, but in a pretty friendly way, not a, a creepy Silicon Valley market overlord kind of libertarianism, <laughs> Yeah, something much closer to, to home. And he was a humble guy and, and kind of working class in a lot of ways, definitely a, an outsider intellectual. I haven't read it yet, but I got his book Cosmic Trigger, which almost feels yeah. like hallucinogenic 
in and of itself by looking at it. Yeah. You know, I mentioned the term transmission earlier. And, you know, I think that all of us can recognize in our lives that there have been media, things that have been like transmitters to us, either a book we read or a movie we saw or a record album we fell in love with, where it wasn't just about enjoyment. It wasn't even about just absorbing information or worldview. It was like it kind of changed us in some way and you can't really go back. And sometimes it can even be a little unnerving the way you can't really go back. But there's a definite sense of like opening up. And Cosmic Trigger was a book like that for me. And it was a book like that for many people, at least people in kind of a general milieu that I've been a part of. And in some ways, I think some of its teachings are more obvious today. So in some ways, it's less radical. And what's interesting about then Robert Anton is that that book, he's explaining experience he had of what I call high weirdness, where things get completely bonkers. And it's it's not just like one drug trip. It's like synchronicities are happening and everything's coming together and they're pointing towards very bizarre possibilities, alien intelligence, uh, paranoia. You know, it's like the, a real ride that you can't really get down from. And that happens to him. And it, he kind of talks about how what led to it and then how he kind of got out of it. And how his sort of viewpoint, his way of approaching the world helped navigate him. And one of the points he makes is precisely that. Even though he doesn't talk about the body too much, there are certain points where it's very clear that his great pluralism, his ability to move through all these different perspectives, to be omnivorous, always learning, fascinated with the new, with new perspectives and physics and sociology, existentialism, cybernetics, poetry, mythology, paganism, you know, all this stuff is that it actually gives you the authority to be you. And in some sense, all you're ever going to get is you. Doesn't mean you don't pay attention to other people. Doesn't mean you don't, you know, improve. Doesn't mean you think you know everything because in a way that's not really being honest about our condition. So there's something about the balance of having the authority of your own experience and your own recognition that, oh, wait, There's something in me that moves between all these worlds. Well, what is that? That's not an idea or a belief system. It's something else that tests and it magnifies and explores itself by moving between these perspectives or different practices or whatever. What's that about? Who's that? And so I think, it again, it can really refine that sense of who you are, which particularly today with the dominance of social media is no mean feat. That's a real challenge. And I think also a very, very necessary practice in our times. Absolutely. And I think it's important what you say about having these inner experiences, because how important are inner experiences as data as we kind of step away from the old Newtonian model of peer-reviewed research and systems? You know, many circles, peer-reviewed is the core of life, whereas in other circles, it's meaningless. How do we get a grip of our truth when our own inner experiences are dictating our data, which the data then becomes our reality? Yeah, that's very well put. I think you kind of put your finger on it. Well, let's take the distinction between the peer-reviewed world and the subjective world, let's call it. So on the one hand, you have people who recognize with very good reason, with a lot of good reasons, that the best hope we have of something like knowledge like real knowledge, like the knowledge that enables you to extract a chemical from an ore and turn it into a cleaning product and then realize that, oh, wait, now we're poisoning the environment. 
We got to do something about that. Well, actually, look, these mushrooms can combine with the soil and then break down that toxic element. Like that whole story, there's something like knowledge that's enabling all of that to happen. How do we create knowledge? Well, there are mechanisms, the scientific method, more or less, peer review, more or less. They're all leaky. They're all broken. They don't work as well as people like to pretend they do. They're a bad thing to look towards values and spiritual truths, but it works really well. And so there's a reason people really love that stuff. And then you go over here and you go, but there's all the stuff that's being missed there, like all the subjective experience or experience of God or things that can't be proven or things that elude the net of science. So what do we do with that? And some people, and this is certainly a way that, that arose and was a big part of the counterculture, a big part of the sort of spiritual explosion that led to mindfulness and yoga and now psychedelics and Burning Man or whatever was this light, of, this kind of refusal as you say, of that peer-reviewed world and say, it's about my experience. What else could there possibly be except my experience? And once I accept that, what else would I want other than intense, profound, illuminating, wonderful, delicious experiences? So then you can imagine a life that's devoted solely to these kinds of inner experiences where you, you feel like you're getting some truth about reality or the nature of existence or even the reality of gods or spirits that you're in communication with because you did a ritual and you, you felt the presence of somebody else and you heard a voice in your head and then the next day you saw a synchronicity and you know that kind of stuff, like the cosmic trigger kind of stuff, that happens. That happens to people all the time. That happens to people who aren't even looking for it. That stuff is as much a part of reality as the peer-reviewed knowledge is. But then the question is, what do we do with that? Yeah. Do we think exactly? Do we think it's the same thing as knowledge? In my view, no. In my view, it's very important to make a distinction in your own mind between those kinds of experiences and what we can say based on them, the more traditional way of coming up generating knowledge through scientific method and the peer review. Do not think that those are the same things. That doesn't mean that the kinds of let's call it knowledge or the kinds of insights that come through inner experience is all hooey. It doesn't mean that it's just some subjective brain fart. No, but it's not the same kind of thing. This is a perfect example of how it is better to think of reality as consisting of multiple domains. There's a domain of reality where it's just the best thing you can do is to throw science at it. Good, old, boring, tedious, nerdy science is the best thing we can do for a lot of questions that we have. But there are all these other worlds where that's not going to help very much and might even actually get in your way. So what do we do with these inner experiences? I believe that there's still something of the scientific spirit that we bring to these experiences, which is that to say that whatever they are, whatever they deliver, however they seem to be implying something about reality, they are also just experiences which means that they arise and they fade. And once they fade, in some sense, we're back where we were. Maybe changed in some way that we can't explain. Maybe we have a, a choice now. What do we do with that remarkable experience we just had? Does it become the new value in my life? Did it give me insight about what I should be doing? Well, geez, actually, I don't know. I'm still wrestling with these problems, with the uncertainty. And that can happen with very profound experiences. And some of us, 
even the most profound experiences, we come out on the other side and go, oh, yeah, so, you know, God leaned down out of the sky and told me my destiny. I'm like, well, that was pretty weird, you know. <laughs> I guess, what am I going to do now? Go, you know, go get a donut or something, you know. <laughs> that's an extreme example. But my belief, and it's just my practice, my way of being in the world, is that it's good to keep your feet on the ground. You know, it's good to keep at least one foot very solidly on the ground, which means that you can go into those other realms and you can have profound life-changing experiences. And sometimes they change you and sometimes they change you in ways you might not have even wanted to change. You know, there are some people who achieve states of their version, their experience of states of high spiritual development. They're living in the now all the time or they unravel the story of the self and they no longer kind of operate in relationship to a story of the self, something really radical. But it's not always that fun. Yeah. There's sometimes, oh man, that, I don't, ooh, enlightenment is not, watch what you want, kids. Enlightenment is not necessarily what you think it is. Oh, yeah. And some experiences like that, you can't really go back from. You might be able to reframe or learn to integrate. And that's good. It's good work to learn to integrate. But I think there's something really important about resisting or at least being very aware of the very human tendency to congeal a new story, a new identity, a new ego, a new purpose of your life, a new meaning out of the froth, especially of extraordinary experiences. And you can see this very clearly with the way people take psychedelics. They take psychedelics, they have a, they have a vision, and they get a change in their life. And sometimes they really do change. They quit their job, they move to the jungle or something, and great, you go on an adventure. But you can also see some, you can see a lot of delusion, you can see a lot of inflation, which is where people believe that they have some kind of a special message for humanity or that they've had some rare kind of insight and their work is going to really help reality. And so that's their new meaning. And then you also see people who realize, because they're paying attention, that actually all of that enthusiasm, it, it's often kind of dissolves over a few weeks or whatever. You kind of lose the you're like, what was that great intuition I had? And then what do you do? And a lot of people are like, why? Well, I'm going to sign up for the next psychedelic session then. You know, it's because then you go back and you get another hit, but you can kind of just repeat over time. So there's something about approaching experience with great respect, because in some sense, it is the only thing we have, the only thing we know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, to remember that it just, it just comes and goes. It just comes and goes. That the love affair of your late adolescence was the most important thing that ever happened to you, and it dissolved like a castle in the sand. An extraordinary orgasm is followed 15 minutes later by a kind of annoying restlessness. Do we watch TV? I don't know. Do we get some? Do we have ice cream? Do you have any ice? You know. And, and so <laughs> yeah. that is just part of the world we're in. And, and to use that rather than look at it as like a disappointing bummer that you can't stay in that peak state. Instead, to go okay, peak states aren't just about having the peak states. Mm-hmm. It's also about integrating them, turning them into material to explore, to play with to undermine other ideas, to be inspired to find other practices. And in my mind, and this is the last thing I've been ranting for a while, but is just if you are somebody who is really interested in those experiences, that it's very important to also have a commitment to a practice. And the idea of a practice is not that you're trying to get anywhere or produce a particular effect. 
Instead, it's a way of affirming and recommitting to the reality of the practice of something that you just keep bringing to the table over and over again that will carry with you and stay with you in a way much longer and in a way more integrally than most of the experiences that we can have, however remarkable. Wow, that is beautifully put. And I really love your focus on knowledge and making the distinction between these kinds of experiences and actual applied knowledge. It's also really important to talk about the importance of the practice, you know, having a grounded practice and keeping that one foot in reality or whatever your version of reality is, is so important because, you know, you need to stay grounded when it comes to all the many different ideas that we can possibly explore. One of the practices that a lot of people are into today is meditation. I love meditation. I am a huge supporter and advocator of it, but in the same way that we're talking about ideas, there is another side of meditation, just like there is another side of enlightenment, where meditation is almost like a scientific experiment in and of itself, where it's a formula where we communicate with a community of peers and we arrive at a consensus about our quote-unquote enlightened states or we don't. And, you know, even some types of meditation like transcendental is not even backed in research or science. And that could be a good thing. It can be a bad thing depending on your reality or your viewpoint. So is there a model for our experiential current that is in one way shareable with others in another way? Are these experiences so personal and so, you know, mystical that we need to maintain the integrity of it by keeping it to ourselves? That's a very good and very deep question that has many angles to approach responding it. So I'll just kind of dive in. I think on the one hand, and it is sort of on the one hand on the other structure, but that <laughs> tends to be often how I think, <laughs> that we share the same overall kinds of bodies. We have the same brains, more or less. We've experienced over evolutionary scale of time, roughly the similar kinds of experiences. So there's a lot of similarities between us, not just in one particular culture, but I believe across cultures, there's a lot of differences too. It's important to acknowledge those differences. At the same time, I think there are some real continuities. What does that mean? Well, it does mean that I'm not just fooling myself when I notice a, a connection between my experience in meditation and some 12th century Zen text where there's some resonance, there's some sense of familiarity. Now you can say, well, it's just because you, you were into Zen. So then you, you thought about Zen when you were having your experience and it made you feel like you were closer to it. But there's a degree of, to which that's true. Our models and maps of reality inform directly our most wild and peak experiences, the ones that seem completely singular and without any influence from the rest of our life. If you actually look at them and break it down, often you can find these influences. But at the same time, I think that they're referring to, to real commonalities. It's just that the commonalities can't be grounded in the same way, I'd believe. As long as you're talking about consciousness and subjectivity, they can't be grounded in the same way that we can ground knowledge in the peer review sense. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do it. I mean, we're in a golden age of meditation geekery where a lot of 
nerdy, articulate, technical people are trying to articulate, refine, and optimize, to use a word that I don't particularly care for, (laughs) optimize our meditation experience, make it more efficient. And one of the presumptions of all that is that there's some commonality. You can come up with the technique, you teach the technique, the technique works for people, people are having roughly similar experiences. And I don't think that that's all, all hooey. But I do believe that there is a difference introduced by the fact of our personal subjectivities that we're in these bodies that are going to die. I'm going to die when I die. It's different than you. And that difference, I believe, introduces the need to hold those commonalities somewhat lightly. That's not tends to be what happens. There's a meditation teacher. They're good presenters. They have good marketing. There's something to their method. People go, they like it, they like the scene, everybody's into it, it seems to work, I'm going to join up, I start using that language, I start doing the practices, and I organize the meaning of those things according to the social rules that I'm also learning by being into the scene. That's true meditation, it's true of Christian churches, it's true of a lot of stuff, that that's kind of what we do. It's important to be able to do that sometimes, often that's the best way to learn a lot of things, learn a lot of techniques, is to go into a kind of scene and fall in love with the teacher or get obsessed with the teacher and do that thing. But I think it's also really important to be aware that there's a singularity in the picture too. There's a singularity of your own experience. And that if you break that down, I don't know, I think it can lose the thread. There is a wisdom to being keeping silent. There is a wisdom to not sharing your peak experiences. There's a great wisdom in not in trying as best as you can to not put your peak experiences in a familiar box that you have lying around. Like I had one mystical experience. I don't tend to talk about my own experiences that much, but I, I ended up writing about this at, at some point. It's in my book, Nomad Codes, which is a collection of essays about a lot of these topics. And cool, I'll I wrote put that in the show this. notes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that came out about eight years ago. It's got a lot of fun stuff in it. But one of them is I said, oh, I'm going to write, I'm going to try to describe this experience. And now I read what I wrote and I go, oh my God, look at all those hidden metaphors that I didn't wasn't aware of what I was doing. Like I can see how the writing introduced something new to the experience. Mm-hmm. But then of course, I'm only remembering a, an experience that I have remembered many times. So I'm I'm really remembering the memory of the experience with a little bit of a trace of something more, a little bit of a trace of something more. But one thing that happened is it happened to me on a Zen retreat, which has been my main kind of formal training. But it really was, it wasn't really very Zen in a lot of ways. You Mm -hmm. know, it kind of like, wait, did that metaphor, I don't know, it doesn't really work. So it just sort of sat there like this weird enigma, this kind of question, a bit of like immediate cosmic chaos that introduced itself into my reality. And I think it's really important to let our singular experiences be singular, which means to be a little chaotic, a little unclear, a little enigmatic, or maybe really enigmatic, where again, the tendency is to say, oh, well, that's that experience. That's what happens when you're at that level or that layer. And you know, these systems of meditation, some of them are incredibly complicated, very technical. I mean, everybody has their own version. Every teacher is tweaking it. So it's either that only one of them is right or they're all kind of right. And I mean, it gets complicated when you think about it. Mm -hmm. But you can go into these systems and kind of identify, oh, I'm doing this and then this is happening. 
And some of that I think is really important. It's just like going to the gym and realizing how muscles work. If you do this, it's better to do this amount of reps and to wait a minute before you do more reps rather than do them 10 seconds afterwards. <laughs> you know, so it's good to know that stuff. It's more fun. It feels better. But at another level, I think it's really important to like almost develop your own personal muse. Like, like in a way, it's just you and, and reality having some enigmatic exchange, like a dream that you can't unpack for anybody else, or it has some feeling that is deeply resonant for you, but you can't quite put into words. Like sticking with that stuff along with your devotion to some system or trying to achieve some particular goal, to my mind, is really key. I love that you talk about that. Like It's almost like tapping into that dream that we cannot unpack. I'm curious, as you were talking about your experience, that you don't usually talk about your experiences, but you mentioned one in the Nomad's Code, when you look back on that writing about that transcendent experience or whatever you want to call it, you said that it led you to a new place. So are you at all proud of sharing that moment because it helped you get to that new place? Or do you look back and are you kind of like wincing at the limited knowledge of what you knew then based on what you know now? Oh, kind of both in a way. Like I knew that by writing about it, in a way I was going to ultimately be unsatisfied with what I was writing about. And I was also a little bit wary of sharing it because I think there, as I said, that there are reasons to keep things under wraps. But I had reached a point, I think, where I felt it was too special. Like I was sort of holding it with me like this little precious jewel that I could bring out on occasion and go, ah, yes, I may be completely confused and, and depressed and frustrated at work or whatever, but I have this magical, mystical experience that I can bring out and <laughs> dust and nobody knows about it. And it's my little special secret. So I was like, okay, enough of that. Let's write about it. Let's see what it means to try to write about it. But that's in a way what I guess what I'm saying is that experiences are kind of like poems where there's something about reading a poem and having a poem that moves you. And you have that experience. There's something it's very difficult to explain what it is, ultimately impossible. It's a feature of life, but of a, a sublime or subtle part of life, sometimes a very funny one, sometimes a difficult one, but there's something integral to that experience. But then you're left and you go, what am I going to do? Well, I'll read the poem again. Oh, now it's a little different because you're <laughs> kind of, you remember how it's structured. And then you read it again, you go, oh, wait, actually that word, that, that's an allusion to another poem. That's like that part in Dante that the T.S. Eliot is referring to. Okay. And then you start to think about it and you realize that the poem is part of a much wider webwork of other poems. And so you start thinking, analyzing to a degree, but staying close to the inspiration. And then you're also doing something that's really important that gets back to your question about how do we think about the social aspects of these experiences is you start to do comparison. Because in a way, that's all you can do. You can say, oh, there's a similarity between this poem and that poem. Different writers, different times. Oh, but what is that similarity? Similarly, you might describe some kind of crazy experience and some dream or you come out of an ayahuasca thing and you describe something and I go, wow, that really resonates with me. I've had something really similar to that. Does that mean we've had the same thing? No way. We can't prove that. I don't even know what it means. But there is a resonance. There is a connection. There's a comparison. There's a similarity. And we can begin to sort of 
architect those as a way of connecting my experiences to yours. So I'm not just off here in my own little narcissistic world. There's a real connection there. But the connection is not because, oh, we both went to the same place. Now, some people claim that, yes, you can go to the same place and the shamans have mapped it out and there's these different realms. And I haven't had that experience. Whatever, Maybe that's true. I don't know. But I know that for the most part, we don't, usually don't get much farther than comparison. But that's still pretty cool. That's still pretty nifty to be able to bring in our hearts, our imaginations, our minds together and to work out how we resonate across selves, across minds, between minds. Amen to that. I love that experiences are like poems. And that's one of the things that I'm exploring or meditating on, so to speak, is that poetry is a portal. Just as podcasting, this podcast, any of the podcasts that are out there today are portals into this other world that we can tap into and meet the others, as Tim Leary likes to refer to the other people that are out there like us with similar interests. So I just find it's fascinating that we can connect to these people and have share these experiences and use them as portals into these new dimensions and new realities. And it kind of all comes full circle. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your insights and your tremendous research that you've done across multiple different fields and with such nuance. It's mind-blowing, Eric. So I really appreciate the value that you've brought into this world. Well, thank you very much. This was a a wonderful uh, opportunity, so I appreciate it a lot. What's next for you? Are you working on a new book? That is a good question. I just finished this huge book. You know, it was my dissertation, and then I turned it into more readable version that took a lot longer than I thought. And so I've been working on this this set of ideas for quite a long time, and I'm, I'm really just wrapping it up, and it'll be out in the spring. So I'm looking forward to that coming out, and I'll do a lot of events around that and probably do a lot of podcasts. So that'll be kind of my main focus for a while. And at the moment, I'm just kind of uh, letting myself unravel a little bit and see uh, it's a forest glade where you're kind of looking for what creature is going to come out of the dappled light. And I'm just sort of sitting there waiting, kind of tuned in, but not uh, yet committed to too much. I mean, I keep doing my podcast. I've been doing that for nine years. And so just trying to up that a little bit, draw a little more attention to it. I've been improving the sound quality, which it took me a long time for me to get around to doing. So that's really good and kind of refining that, trying out some new experiments with that. So that's a pretty consistent thing. Expanding Mind has been a great project for me. I still enjoy it very much. I think it's a wonderful time to be doing podcasts. I think it's one of the more hopeful parts of our rather toxic information environment. Absolutely. I love your podcast, Expanding Mind. I will put the link to it in show notes because I think my listeners will actually love what you're up to. It's so fascinating. So thank you so much for sharing everything. Thanks so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. Okay, thanks a lot. You made it to the end of this podcast. This means the world to me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. You can also message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle is Being Is Human. That's B E I N G I S H U M A N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've enjoyed from this episode. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. You can also share this episode with two of your friends who you think would enjoy it. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Listen, explore, evolve.